Welcome to the second episode of Little Bit of Everything. Today we talk about creative use of data. Welcome back to our second episode of Little Bits. We're super excited to be back. Zen and I have been on a bit of a podcast hiatus. Both of us are actually doing our field work right now in two different countries. So sorry for the silence on our part. Um, right now I'm in Portugal. And uh, I am in uh, Vienna right now, Austria. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of a struggle to try to figure out how to do this, but we're back and we're ready to go. And we're going to be a little experimental over the next few episodes, but we're both really excited. Yeah. So today... Zene is going to be leading the march here. And what are we talking about? Uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about creative use of data. And, well, the idea kind of stemmed from the episode we recorded with Carolina Castaldi. That was the one on innovation, right? Yeah, the one on innovation, indeed. Uh, because she told us to measure innovation, researchers often use uh, patent data because those register very specifically what kind of technology has been invented and where it was invented and by whom. But she also told us that using patent data can also have some drawbacks because you never measure a very specific kind of innovation. And I think that's very interesting because as researchers often want to uh, research s certain concepts like innovation that are kind of intangible concepts, And so you can never measure these concepts directly. So, for instance, you can also, it's hard to measure well-being directly. So you have to come up with uh, kind of indicators of such concepts or developments. And I think this is the fun part about research, because research have, uh, researchers have to be creative somehow. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. So to see where research is were very creative uh, in their use of data. Okay, cool. So it's sort of like, how are we finding ways to measure what we would typically think is not measurable, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Cool. So where do we start? Yeah. So as a first example, a lot of social research is focused on the richer part of the world. And I think that's partly because that's where the most universities are located, But it also has something to do with that a lot of data is not available for the less developed parts of the world. So because poorer countries often have less money to spend on institutions that uh, measure certain things like uh, uh, population count or economic activity or income data, things like that. So as a workaround, um, Since uh, I think the beginnings of the, this century, uh, researchers started using uh, satellite imagery of uh, night lights to uh, measure economic activity in uh, African countries. So basically, they tried to look at how much light there was at night. That was just it. Yeah, indeed. And apparently that's a very good indicator of the economic activity there. So examples of studies that use it are studies that wanted to see the impact of certain infrastructure projects. Or um, some weeks ago I was at a, a conference here in Vienna 
and someone presented his study in which he wanted to see the economic impact on regional development uh, in Africa of uh, soccer stadiums that were funded by the Chinese government. And he used these satellite nightlight data to see if it had any impact on regional poverty. And, well, it didn't. Oh, well, that kind of sucks. But I guess my question is, is how do we know that light at night relates to economic development? How do we bridge that gap? I think we are not kind of sure why it's a good indicator, but apparently it is. And I think we can guess because... You can say, okay, if a region is uh, economically well-developed, then there's also more activity at night. Um, but of course, there are some drawbacks, as in it's not a perfect indicator. But I think that's for most of these indicators that they're never perfect. And you also never know for certain why they work, but they do work. Yeah, but see, when you tell me that, that kind of reminds me of these other examples that aren't even necessarily tied to data, right? Like the first thing that I think of is a canary in a coal mine, right? Where coal miners used to bring these little canaries with them down to the coal mines to see if they can detect, I think it was poisonous gases or kind of the quality of the air. And if the canary couldn't breathe, then they knew, okay, well, we probably shouldn't go any further. And no one necessarily knew what the gases were that they were sensing or anything like that, but they just knew the gases in here are bad now and we need to leave. Yeah, I think another uh, a good bird example is uh, that swallows fly low, I think, before a storm is coming. So you can also use that as an indicator. Yeah, I guess thinking of all these bird examples, it actually reminds me of there's one bird that's native to um, North America. It's called the Viri. And I think it's in like Delaware. Bird experts don't come at me. I'm pretty sure it's in Delaware. But the Viri is a migratory bird. And this bird is able to predict the severity of hurricane seasons months, months, months in advance, which is really, really crazy. So I don't think anyone knows exactly how they know, but we just know that the earlier that these birds choose to migrate, the worse the hurricane season is going to be. Oh, wow. And it's unbelievable. And the reason they're doing this, right, you can understand from the point, point of view of the Viri that they're going to leave earlier to avoid all of these turbulent winds and stuff. But how they know that this is going to happen, no one knows. I also find it interesting how someone made that link. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, these bird watchers. Yeah. Listen, bird bird watchers are serious yeah. about their craft. <laughs> um, and what's even crazier is that oh, you could say oh, well, you know, they're probably somewhat accurate, but we have all of this like satellite technology that follows all of these things, and these birds are more accurate than our technology. And I think that's quite incredible. Yeah, that's really cool. So I think that this idea that we can use these weird kind of other measurements or other concepts that seem in some way unrelated to measure something is, isn't necessarily new. No, maybe it's a kind of an ancient craft uh, <laughs> somehow. Oh, yeah, I guess like thinking about an ancient craft, right? There's a whole thing with cooking rice. And I think both a lot of Asian cultures do it, but also a lot of Middle Eastern cultures do it, that you know the amount of water to put in based on the first indent of your 
I think it's like your ring finger supposed to be. Okay. So we're the line of the water needs to reach the line of the first indent of your ring finger. And that's how you know the perfect amount of water. Oh, wow. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> you're welcome. I didn't know that. Good source of data. But how is this changing today? Because you're saying that today we have so much more data. Like, obviously, there's things that are lacking. But how are we making changes? Yeah, so I think in academia, this uh, encourages or stimulates a lot of uh, research, as I just explained with the satellite data. But also outside of academia, you see uh, it has some real impacts. So for some time, the, the, how the stock markets work is also changed by the use of big data. And yeah, I'm no expert on uh, stock exchange, so I'll try to make it very uh, simple. So also I will uh, understand myself. So how I understand that the stock market works is that you kind of vote with, uh, with money on companies you think will perform good. And if your vote turns out to be right, then uh, you earn money. And if not, well, you lose. Uh, so it kind of works like a big poker game and everyone is trying to make uh, an educated guess, but you have limited information. But uh, you can imagine that if you have more information than others have or certain information has reached you quicker, you can make a better guess. So... That's also the reason that uh, these stock markets have certain rules on uh, what's called uh, insider knowledge. For instance, if a, a, if a company has certain information that will affect their stock, they have to reveal that publicly at once so that no one uh, has a certain advantage because they know that information before. And so if, uh, you can think about a merger between two companies, for instance. However... With the rise of big data, uh, this is changing because an example I really like is the use of airplane data. So this data is publicly available. Um, so you can check right now which airplanes are flying over you. Uh, and you can even see the airplane uh, number or the flight number. And this includes private jets. So what this company did was they track private jets of CEOs of big companies. And what they could see is that if a CEO of one company, uh, his private jet was parked to the private jet of a CNO of another big company, and that happened uh, very often in a short period of time, they guessed that a merger was coming between these two companies. And that is very valuable information on the stock market. I can definitely see how this is super lucrative. <laughs> it is super lucrative. So there, there are even wickeder examples than this. So for instance, a company that developed an algorithm that analyzes public announcements by these CEOs of big companies. And they don't analyze the words that they're saying, but the tone of voice. Oh my God. Oh my God. Could you imagine like overthinking the tone of someone's voice? I'm just imagining them sitting there in a conference room trying to discuss the tone of their voice. <laughs> like, how do you think they said this? <laughs> yeah, but it can say much more than sometimes the words that they're saying. Because for instance, they say everything is going well for the company, but they know it's not. You can maybe hear it in their tone of voice. And that's what this 
this algorithm is trying to analyze whether they sound happy or angry or sad or whatever. Oh my God, this really is like poker. You're trying to figure out what's their tell. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Do they, you know, scratch their nose when they're lying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And I think, uh, well, maybe the bad thing of this is, is that uh, the more money you have as, for instance, a big hedge fund, the more you can make use of this kind of alternative sources of data because you can spend money on people figuring out cool algorithms that track the tone of a voice of a CEO. So it maybe makes the stock exchange a little less fair. I mean, was the, was the stock exchange ever fair? <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess thinking about this, it, it is really, really interesting to me because it really reminds me of this conversation that we had with Pierre Alexander in our episode on AI, where we talked about the ethics of data. Yeah. Because right now, using all this like big data, whether it's airplane data or tone of voice data or whatever it is, you're right, totally puts one group of people with all of these resources and power to use this data. And there isn't, as far as I know, in the stock exchange, there is no legislation against developing an algorithm that will track the voice of a CEO. So it's perfectly legal, right? Yeah, but I also wouldn't know how to make legislation on that. Yeah, and then you start thinking a little bit too about that episode where we were talking about how AI is just making a bunch of predictions on us all the time. And then we got to think about, wow, we really are using all of this sort of huge data to not only predict these major events, like, I don't know, like a stock dump or a stock, you know, rise. <laughs> I clearly know a lot about the stock market based on yeah, me the way <laughs> talking. Um, but it also is very personal and we're getting to like this very sort of granular level where we're using like huge amounts of data to make predictions about really tiny, tiny things. Yeah. And I guess my question is, is also at what point does this switch from accurate predictions to superstition? Yeah. Or that you even develop algorithms at some point that make predictions that are true, but you're not knowing how, as yeah. in what the birds are doing. Yeah. Why are the birds so migrating? Algorithms will, will be the new birds <laughs> of this time. I hope so. Actually, I really don't hope so. I feel like the birds are kind of cool. I prefer the birds. <laughs> um, the real question is, though... How do we include these bird watchers in this whole thing? Because they really, I think they have the best grip on reality of all of us, right? They're the ones really noticing these little patterns. So the real question is, what bird is going to help us predict which stocks to invest in? The Twitter bird, I think. The Twitter bird. I don't know. Now I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared of Twitter now. <laughs> all right. So, you know, I actually also heard of this really in this podcast, I, I really like that. I don't think is going anymore. It might still be going. It's called Reply All. And they did an episode about global happiness. And like you mentioned earlier that like global happiness is super hard to measure because what is happiness? What does that even mean? But what they did is that they took tweets from around the world. They did this, I think, only with the English language so far. But they would take basically all the tweets that were tweeted in a day. And then they would select, I think it was like, the 50 happiest words and the 50 unhappiest words. So happy words would be like weekend and party and, you know, 
excited. So, so these happy words, and then you know, unhappy words would be like violence and and war and depressed. <laughs> and so they would take all of these words and see what is the frequency that they were being used at a certain amount of time to basically predict the English speaking's level of happiness that day. Oh wow! So. Yeah, it was really crazy. So I think they predicted that in in 2020, um, not only that was that like the most unhappy year basically since the global recession, which is clear, but they also found that May 31st of 2020 was the most unhappiest day, I think, since the creation of Twitter. And that was when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on in the U.S. Oh, wow. So they were yeah. able to literally see how upset we were <laughs> as a population just using the words we selected in our tweets. Oh, wow. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Again, we use bird knowledge. So that's good. Yeah. So once again, really, I think... <laughs> Modern um, bird knowledge. Yeah. Maybe this episode should have been called A Little Bit of Birds. A Little Bit of Birds and Data. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The Data Birds. <laughs>